This week on the Cameron Journal Podcast, we're talking with Philip Kane. He's a former executive at Goodyear Tire and Pirelli, and we are talking with him about his new book on leadership, uh, How to Be More Caring. And I'm really excited to talk with him. It's a wide-ranging conversation, and he we talk about leadership and how it works in teams and large organizations, and we talk about how to create a culture that is positive for people and leads to great results and makes for a great place, not only for people who work there, but also for investors who are investing in the business. So. Um, this is a really interesting conversation. If you're in a leadership position or you're leading a team or you are aspirational to get that next promotion, this is definitely a conversation for you. I know this is a little bit different than what we talk about, but that's why it's called the Cameron Journal because we talk about a little bit of everything. So strap in everybody. It's the Cameron Journal podcast. This is the Cameron Journal podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. It's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. on the Cameron Journal podcast, we are speaking with author Philip King. He wrote the book called The Subtle, The Hot, I'm sorry, Mm. The Not Subtle Art of Caring. I had to read the title again. These things happen. It also would help if the host would put on his glasses. But either way, we're speaking to Philip King today. This is a fascinating book about leadership. Um, Despite the title, it actually, rather than most books are trying to get us to care less, this book is actually trying to get us to care more. Um, and I was looking through it and reading some of the tips and all this type of thing. And usually this is the type of book that um, is not for us here on the Cameron Journal podcast. Most people know we do something different. But I found um, his experiences to be unique and this to be like a different book on leadership. So we're going to have a conversation. So let's welcome Phil to the Cameron Journal podcast. How are you, sir? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me today, Cameron. I really appreciate it. You're very, very welcome. So I, I want to start off kind of right from the jump of finding out what inspired you to write a book about leadership, because there are a dozen trillion of them at any They're, bookstore. It is pretty crowded. Well, I'll tell you, I grew up, my, my father was probably the, he, he would be considered a servant leader before there was even a name for it. But as as kind of time went by, I started to to note as I led people that there was a, a sort of void between the kind of archetypal, autocratic, hard-fisted style of leadership that was really the hallmark of the last century and what had been co-opted as servant leadership, which was kind of a a style of leadership that just said, hey, just be nice to everybody all the time and the results will take care of themselves. My style of leadership was kind of in between there that just that said, no, results matter, but you can achieve results and still be kind to people at the same time. And throughout my career, every Friday, I would write letters to people 
about what I thought was important in terms of the way that people cared for each other and treated each other. And after about 20 years of, of leading people, I had a whole bunch of these letters and I would threaten from time to time to write a book. And finally, um, this year, in, in looking around, particularly during COVID, and, and we'll talk about that, I think, and, and seeing what was going on in the remote work economy, I thought it was time to, to tell the world that, hey, you don't have to choose between being kind to people and achieving results. There's a way to do both. Yeah, I, th I think that is very important for COVID, but I want to give some people some background about yourself. So as I understand, you were an executive at a tire company. Yeah, I spent 12 years, a couple of them, as a matter of fact, I spent 12 years working at the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company and then a couple more in Milan, Italy, working for Pirelli. So what it, give us some insight to the to the tire business, like what, you know, it's one of those things that, like everybody uses, but we don't think a lot about, like what is unique about that industry? <clears throat> It's an industry, as you could imagine, kind of like the car business. It's a very traditional industry, a hundred-year-old industry, um, typically kind of male-dominated, um, kind of, I call them dirty fingernail industries, uh, very slow to change, very slow to kind of adopt new ways of thinking. Definitely. I can I can definitely I can definitely see that. Um, when you first got into management, um, what was something that you observed about that kind of old-fashioned traditional leadership structure? Well, it probably wouldn't surprise you to know that I was a bit like a fish out of water uh, with my style of leading in in this hundred-year-old tire company that was used to leading people a different way. So, but Fortunately, the results of my business enabled me to thrive and survive there where I, meanwhile, I had a, a leadership style that didn't quite fit in. So it was, it was an interesting relationship to be sure to, to practice a leadership style that was quite a lot different than the traditional management style in an organization that wasn't quite ready for it. Mm. What was the difference? How, which was harder, Goodyear or Pirelli? I would tell you Goodyear. Um, certainly, uh, in in an Italian tire company on in on the European continent, uh, it, it's an organization that that tended to be a, a tad more progressive than than a hundred year old American tire company. So it was it was easier to be me at Pirelli than it was at Goodyear. I could tell you that. No, I like I was wondering, so I, can, I can imagine like, you know, it's your first day at the office in Milan, Italy, and everybody's like, who is this American? Where did he come from? Who hired him? Yeah, <laughs> like, first American executive ever in Milan. So there was a lot of that. And just like at, at Goodyear, where I spent the, the first probably three months of my life, um, making sure I didn't get organ rejected out of the culture it was the same way in milan at pirelli and, and that's that's instructive for for your audience that that 
when you go someplace new, the, the most important first step is, is to make sure that, that you do what's necessary to, to fit into the culture before you start to do anything else. Yeah, I mean that's I, you know, that's that's an area where uh, I I have I have never had any great success myself. Um, I, I I I tend to get be gotten rid of very quickly. Um, how, how, you know what what are some of the things like what are some of the things that you did to fit in in your new environment, Italy? Well, I think in in any organization or any place that you go there there has to be some amount of deference to the history of the place and and to the culture of the place because it's not well enough to say hey um, I'm going to be me whether they like it or not because that's a that's a prescription to become organ rejected but um, it's it's also not well enough to say okay, I'm just going to park me at the door and become one of them because that doesn't work either because then why should they have hired you in the first place if all you're going to do is just come and fit in from day one? So it has to be a process of saying, I'm going to be deferential to the history and the culture of this place while slowly injecting bits of myself into this place in, in amounts that the place can tolerate. No, <clears throat> I think that's very helpful. Uh, that actually makes makes a lot of sense. I, uh, I I wish I could do that. I tend I tend to just kind of like you know show up with a lot of ideas and a lot of different uh, different things, and I kind of have like the way I do things and the way that st stuff works and all this type of thing. And there's so much of that like soft power culture stuff that I just. I, I just don't understand. It just doesn't make any sense to me, you know? Um, and so, you know, I tend to go to work to work and most people don't. Um, and so it's, it's, it's very interesting to get that perspective. And I think that's helpful for people because um, my method does not work. So your method is effective. Um, and so I think that's a good, a good idea. That's, I like that a lot. Well, people, Cameron, in terms of an inoculation where if, if you go in and think of yourself as, uh, as some um, new, um, you're not a disease necessarily, but you're going in as something new to the organization. And if you just go in all in, every antibody in that organization, because organizations are living, breathing things, they're going to seek you out, attack you and organ reject you right out of the building. But if, if, like it with an inoculation, if if you go in and just introduce little bits of, of you at a time, um, soon the the organization will learn to to tolerate you, and and before you know it, um, it you'll be a, a full fledged part of the organization. Where um, had you just gone in guns blazing, full force you, um, you would have done a U turn and just gone right back out the front door. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it, it's definitely one of those things where like like in my professional life before i started doing this i worked mostly in marketing <clears throat> and um and so obviously like when people um hire new marketing people it's usually because there is a problem in the sales process 
um, or, you know, numbers are not what they could be, um, or sometimes in very rare occasions, um, you know, someone has left and they have something that works and they need someone to like shepherd that what's working sort of thing. Um, I, I tend to be a much better fix the problems than I whatever was a shepherd, something that already existed. <clears throat> and so there's kind of this pressure early on to like, you know, get the phones ringing or get the leads coming in or get the sales staff busy or, you know, all this type of thing. Particularly if they work on commission, they're very invested in how, what you're doing. And, uh, and so I, I kind of always kind of arrived to the situation with the problems to solve, things to do, all this type of thing. But it was, the problem with that is it's very difficult to do that without being disruptive. And right. so, you know, you, then you disrupt everything and you piss everybody off and, and, you know, and then six months later, you know, I've made everybody a bunch of money, but they can't wait to get rid of me because <laughs> I caused too much change way too fast for them. <laughs> so I, I, I see the wisdom. I, long, long story long to say, I see the wisdom of your method and I think it's super helpful. Well, thanks. So um, I, this is very interesting. What do you think most people get wrong about leadership? I think most people, Cameron, particularly young leaders, make the mistake of believing that leadership comes with a title, not with the the expectation from those that they have the privilege to lead that the leader is going to do something for them. And, and so here's what I mean by that. So. I get a shiny new business card that says I'm the director of something. And, and I believe all of a sudden that, that the people I lead have an obligation to do something for me because I now have a title that says I'm in charge of these people. That's the mistake that most leaders make. Um, instead of saying, I now have a title that says I'm director of something. And so I have an obligation to serve those that I lead. And when I serve those that I lead and make them successful, I will be successful as a result of that. So that's that's the calculus change that, that results in leaders being successful or not. So those that believe that those they lead have an obligation to them will tend to be less successful than those who believe that they have an obligation to those they serve. No, that definitely makes sense. That definitely makes sense. Uh, I think a lot of people, you know, they are, they're, in my humble opinion, they get their self-worth <clears throat> and whatnot um, tied up in titles and all this type of thing, not necessarily realizing, you know, moving up actually involves a lot more responsibility and doing a lot more for other people and being incredibly much less selfish. Exactly. It's, 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 it's kind of counterintuitive. Um, I always right. tell people, you know, and I, I always tell people, I said, you know, when you're working with me or for me, I will never ask you to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. And to be honest, I've probably done whatever I've probably already done what I've asked you to do at some point in my life. Um, and I also believe that at some point things have to get done 
regardless. So that may mean, you know, if the carpet needs to be vacuumed and everybody else is doing something else, guess who's vacuuming the carpet? Me. Like, you know, does it matter that it's like, didn't, you know, didn't you raise the $50,000 to do this event? Yeah, but the rug is bad. And there's, I have 50 people doing 50 other things. So, you know, vacuum, vacuum, like all this type of thing, like that sort of idea. It's people, I think, respond to that. There's no question. And you hit the nail on the head just a few moments ago. In fact, it's one of the things that I write about in my book about making others big. And, And it's the paradox of leadership that when, when you set out to make others big and make yourself really, really small, you will, as a result, make yourself and in the endeavor that you're working on really, really big. And, and, and it seems backwards, but, but it's not. Um, it is the job of us as leaders to make other people really, really big. And in the process of doing that, we will ourselves get big. No, that definitely, that definitely makes sense. So I know you already mentioned the pandemic. So um, this question should be interesting. Um, How does remote working change leadership for management? Well, I think one of the, and I'll use just kind of the the results of this whole thing as an example, and, and, and then talk about your question directly. But part of what we saw through the pandemic is, is everybody went home, right? And because we said, hey, we've got to work remotely now. And and the mistake that was made through that is, is everybody that managed all these people essentially said, well, I'm just going to manage you exactly the same way that I did before. But But then also what crept into that was this kind of natural cynicism or skepticism on the part of all these leaders that said, you know what, I don't believe that you're at home working all day, or I think that that maybe you're doing something other than working on my time. And so you had this collision of people that were managing people remotely in the same way that they managed them in person, doubled up with a dose of cynicism and skepticism, and it started to become a train wreck. And it has been kind of a train wreck. And and so instead, what should have happened, kind of to directly answer your question, is all of these organizations that sent everyone home should have equipped their managers to manage in a remote environment. And to learn that how you manage people when they're not with you every day is different. It requires a whole different set of managerial skills. It requires a whole different set of communication skills. And it requires a whole different level of trust in the people that that you're managing. Because fast forward, what we've seen are now 15 and a half million people who are leaving their perfectly good jobs most of whom 40% of whom are saying i'm leaving because i'm burned out and then another 20 plus percent who are saying i'm leaving because the environment is toxic and it's toxic because the the person who's leading me is ill equipped to lead me doesn't believe i'm working um, i'm stressed out and so what 
where we are is in an environment where we we have people working remotely and being managed by people who aren't equipped to do so. Indeed. Well, and let's also face it, like the reality of um, the, the reality of remote work is that um, it's a much more results oriented environment. And I think a lot of managers, particularly of a certain age, like that's not even on their radar. Like they don't understand like you know, it doesn't necessarily matter how your staff is spending each second of their time. It's what's getting produced in what time span, you know? No, you're exactly right. Because we went from an environment where built into the workday was a, a certain amount of time that was devoted to non-productive activities. And then we went to an, an environment where it was basically um, productive, entirely productive work or, or piece rate work, if you will. People were being measured by output by people that expected them to be producing output all of the time. So it was entirely unrealistic. And so, and so this is why you see so many of these uh, mostly young people becoming so stressed out because they're, they're being, whether they're putting the pressure on themselves artificially or it's being felt by them, they're feeling like they have to be working eight to nine to 12 hours a day producing output where that was never expected of them when they were in the office. Yes. And when, when it comes to, when it comes to the whole toxic culture, I mean, I don't know if, you know, if you have, you know, experiences, but it, it has been my experience in the few times that I've had regular employment in my life, um, <clears throat> that uh, the people that tend to get into middle management tend to be those that are really into, like, command and control. They kind of think they're better than everybody else. They automatically presume everyone's kind of lazy and all this type of thing. And for some reason, but I will never understand, these people always seem to end up leading teams or departments. And I think the I think the remote working environment, like that's already toxic in an in-person environment, but you can kind of navigate around it. I feel like in a remote working environment, especially during a pandemic, it, it, it just turns into Chernobyl. It's like, you know, it's not 3.5, Ronkin, it's 15,000. Like, it just becomes so awful. And I think that leads to the exodus that you talked about. Yeah, I think you're, you're exactly right. And because largely what happens in, in most organizations or many organizations is that the, in, in the middle management promotions is the best person at a particular task is often promoted to to the next level of management. And so you you take someone um, and put them in a in a managerial role, not because they're they're expected to be a great manager of others, but because they were the best at the task. And then often they're they have no training in terms of how to manage people. And then it doesn't go well. And then now add on top of that the layer of what we've been talking about, where they're managing people that they don't see all day, every day. 
and and then that natural skepticism enters into the equation and and they they're left to believe that people aren't busy all day and and it 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 just leads to to no good end and uh, and what it leads to is what we've seen is this um, great resignation that that I've written about a couple times for Inc magazine where you have people leaving what what would have been a year and a half or two years ago regarded as perfectly good jobs but but they're not perfectly good jobs anymore because of the way these people feel like they're being treated right now indeed um now to that point the atlantic posted an article a little while ago called the end of management and the argument was that if if we keep going with this whole remote working environment middle management might be obsolete here in a couple years. Um, as someone who's been involved in two very large international organizations, um, what do you think about that? You know, and as a follow-up, like, would different leadership principles maybe shift that paradigm? Well, I think there's a vast difference between management and leadership. And I think whether people are working together all in one place in an office or or working remotely or some combination thereof, I think that there's always going to be a place for leadership because as people at, at one level of an organization are going to, to need in their careers and for the health of the organization to progress to other levels of the organization. So it, it, what I mean by that is let's, let's take a, a coding organization. Um, people writing code aren't going to be satisfied writing code for the rest of their life. They're, they're going to want to progress to other levels of, of management or responsibility in the organization. And so they're going to need others in, in the organization to help lead them to that progression. Now, to your point, I do believe that the era of autocratic micromanaging narcissists um, that is is coming to a a more abrupt end than I think would have been allowed to happen had had this the COVID phenomenon of remote work not happened because that kind of insular um, boys and girls club that that insulated these. Um, toxic managers from the the ramifications of their behavior um, would have extended for much longer than than it than it is right now because the what's happening is the inappropriateness of their behavior is being laid bare by the remote work economy. Yes, and uh, and that I mean that there's been many think pieces written on that. And as somebody who's worked for a couple of them, I was cheering and being like, it's about time. Like, <laughs> this has been awful for decades. <laughs> like, it's about time these people got exposed. Um, and, and I mean, one of the arguments in that article made was that, you know, what do you need middle management for when anybody from the C-suite can jump on Slack and ask a dozen people, a hundred people, all this type of thing. What's going on? When are these deliverables arriving? All this type of thing. You know, do we really, you know, do we need, you know, 
department maybe we need team leads but we don't need department head you know all this type of thing like there's a whole reshuffling going on right now and all of that and i think it's fascinating as they kind of try to figure out what do we really need and maybe yeah. not as much as we think we did yeah i agree with that i think what the i think the the type of people and the skill sets are involved are are changing and will continue to change particularly uh, in, in in the example that that you made, the having CEOs that jump on Slack, who who take an interest in frontline work, those type of people are will become more common than less common. Where historically they've been less common because those the C-suite people have been far too insulated. They they stay in the the C-suite with very little idea for what actually goes on in their business. But um, what what's what the remote economy will drive are will have to be people at that level that become far more aware for of what goes on at at the nearest level to their customers moving forward. Definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, and I think that's, I think that is something that, I think I think it's going to breed a new, to, to, go, to go to the leadership point, I think it's going to breed a new nature of leadership and who gets moved up, especially in really big organizations. You know, uh, like Mary Barr at GM which I'm sure, you know, coming from the tire business, you were very cozy with over folks at General Motors. Um, like, like, like she was an engineer, like she designed cars and she kind of like managed to like wind her way through their ever more mysterious corporate structure to be CEO. And I think the way she's led GM has been very different from like the, her three predecessors that kind of drove the whole business into the ground. Like it's a very different philosophy. Yes, yeah, so no question about it. Absolutely. Um, to that point, um, there are so many options for like leadership methods, especially today. like there's agile now and Six Sigma project management and all this type of thing. Um, how does somebody get clarity on the mess of all of this? Like, like how, like kind of how there's a whole menu of options, what to choose. Well, I think for me, in fact, I, I just recently wrote an article um, about Agile and because it's it's kind of becoming the new Six Sigma. But if, if you look at Six Sigma implementations um, over the, the life of Six Sigma, virtually all of them fail. And and the the reason for that is there, there are implementations that are put on top of effectively broken business models. And the same thing is likely going to happen with, with Agile. And when I'm, I'm, I'm speaking of Agile in terms of a business philosophy, not as a software development tool, to be clear. And so the, what, what I advocate for, for leadership, and so this will be a general leadership tip for anyone who's listening, is spend the time understanding what happens at the front line of your business and and that will do more for for your understanding as a leader and for the trust that your people have in you than any single act that you could do as a leader 
and far more than saying, hey, let's slap Six Sigma or slap Agile on top of our business. Because if, if you have a business that, that is not founded on trust and is not founded on effective processes that are that have been put in place from the top of it to the bottom of it, then any of those pick the buzzword Six Sigma or Agile or or any other new business philosophy is destined for failure if the people in the business from the top of it to the bottom of it aren't completely aligned and connected to what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah, no, I think I think it's I mean, I think there's a whole I I think part of that disconnect comes from the fact that like, like I was kind of saying, like so oftentimes, especially in the past, the people who were leading organizations, especially like big blue chip companies, you know, a lot of those people came out of consulting firms, they had never, like, built a car, you know, they had never darkened the door of a factory. And it's like, you know, and and the and in the past that was you know it was like in the like forties and fifties that was a completely different sort of sort of thing. Like, did you watch Ford versus Ferrari? Yeah, I sure did. Yeah, you know that scene where like Henry Ford Jr. walks out and they're like building like Ford Falcons or something, and he's right. kind of like, "We need a new idea around here, and if none of you have any new ideas, don't come back tomorrow." Like, that doesn't happen anymore. Like, right. <laughs> Like, like nobody, you know, does the CEO, to use a very sad example, does the CEO of Boeing drive up to Everett and walk into the 787 assembly line and be kind of like, we've got some problems here at this airplane company, <laughs> you know, our planes crash. Um, so everybody go home, think of some new ideas and come back tomorrow and we're going to see if we can fix our broken plane. Like, nobody does that anymore. Like that's just like not a not a thing. Like, you know, so that that disconnect, you know, I think is a problem. Like the, these the people that work in different parts of these companies, they don't they're not even from the same background. They're from different worlds. No, you're exactly right. And and that that scene in in the Ford movie is a great one. And that's exactly what I advocate for. Because what what I tell people all the time is, if you want to know what needs fixed in your business, just leave your office and go down on the floor and ask the people who are doing the work. They know what's broken in the business. Just like um, the, to use your Boeing example, go down on the floor and and ask those people what's wrong. They'll tell you. Just like in the Ford example, um, he went down on the floor. Those people know or knew at that point what was wrong in that business. They'll tell you. And then it's just a matter of listening to them and implementing what they tell you. Yeah, no, I abs absolutely. That when I, every marketing job I've started, if there's a sales staff, the first thing I've done is I said, I only have one question for you. And they'll be kind of like, oh, and I'm kind of like, what is missing from your sales toolkit that I can make for you? That's it. That's my, my job is to provide sales support. What don't you have that you need? And I will go build that thing for you as fast as possible. 
you know, is it a technology issue? Do you need better leave behinds? You know, is our brand old and out of date? I need to hire 50 graphic designers to make, to, you know, make us something new, um, you know, at tremendous expense, um, like RIP my budgets this year, but okay. Um, you know, like, what do you, what do you need that will make it easier for you to get people's money? And then and that's it. And, and that's yep. not, that's you, that's very rare to find in marketing. I agree. In fact, mm -hmm. I was talking to somebody else about that, that very thing today, that that's, that's one of the things that, that is missing in, in marketing. Marketing tends to want to prescribe, not to take the time to ask the people in sales, what, what is it that you need to be more successful? Well, I mean, they're, they're, they're the ones who are talking to the customers. In marketing, we don't usually get to talk to the customers a lot. We get customer feedback data. Um, we might, you know, in this age of digital, we might have, you know, more reports from Google than I care to read, um, you know, sort of thing. But, you know, they're, they're out with the customers. They know what they don't have that they're losing sales on. So, you know, to me, like, that's the first, to me, that's really the only question that matters in that sort of situation. But, and there's, I think, I feel like in leadership, there's something comparable for every part of an organization, you know. It's like, when was the last time you walked out to the assembly line and found out what's wrong with the way you're building cars and airplanes? You know, <laughs> it, yeah, you know, things, things along, along those lines. Um, of all the advice you give, what is the one thing people could do today that would improve their leadership of their team or in their organization? Well, we've really been talking about it and, and it's to, to take the time to go talk to the people who are actually doing the work. And I tell people all the time, you can't manage what you've never seen before. And, and you have to, to spend the time with the people who are closest to the work and closest to the customer. And, and if you don't do that, you'll never have an appreciation for, for what, what works and what doesn't. And, and, this, and the other thing, um, if you'll indulge me a second thing of is course. as as a leader, you have to do things to ensure that when the goals of the organization are met, that the lives of the people in, in your organization improve. Because it's, it's never enough to stand up in front of a group of people and say, hey, gang, our goal this year is to have record profits in the organization. Because guess what? They don't care. Because their frame of reference is house payment, car payment food on the table for the kids or tuition for the kids. They don't care one iota about record earnings in the company unless it translates to record earnings in their households. So the most successful leaders ever are those who can say, hey, gang, when the record earnings in the company are achieved, you will achieve record earnings in your household. Because when they do, that's when magic occurs. Because at that point, the people in the organization will care about the goals of the organization because then it becomes personal to them. No, definitely. I, I, and definitely in our environment where we have, you know, really stagnant wage growth, um, you know, a lot of people who don't even, you know, make enough money to basically live in this country, all this type of thing. 
Um, I think a lot of that, you know, it's really hard to get ex it's really hard to get excited about companies making progress when all the profits go to stock buybacks, which is great for the those who own stock options upstairs, but doesn't really do a whole lot for you know people on lower floors. Exactly. You know, so I, I that is definitely that is definitely a thing. Um, in terms of uh, in terms of like. Like like in people doing interesting things in leadership. Are there any like prominent people right now who are doing interesting things that you really like? Well, uh, I think as I look around and and watch leaders of overall, I I look at. Um, now he, he passed away at the end of of last year, but one of one of the people that 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 had always stood out for me was Tony Say at Zappos, and and it was because of of what what he was able to do in terms of injecting the the culture of that organization into what every single person did every single day when they went to that place. And, and that's what's required to win in any organization, whether it's in business or a team or in a community organization. Everyone in the organization has to, to be able to understand and articulate what the organization is about and to be able to, in every decision they make, understand how the decisions they make connect up to what the organization is trying to accomplish. And, and that's what what Tony did there. And, and that's why, um, for me, he's somebody that, that I have always tried to emulate in everything that I've done, because that's what he accomplished was to say that, um, and it could have, whether it was a shoe company or whether it was a car company or a tire company, it, it wouldn't have mattered with him because it was about what we're trying to accomplish here is, is known and understood by every single person who works here and they want to be a part of it. No, and Zappos was known, especially before they got bought by Amazon, for their legendarily good customer service. Yeah, it was incredible. <clears throat> and I'm sure um, if you were one of their customers like me, um, you you bought product from them um, with without regard for for what it costs just because of of the experience that you had there and knowing that if if for whatever reason they didn't like them didn't fit all you had to do is um put them back in the box and send them back um and and the and there was never an issue with that and and the experience of of doing business with them if you if you ever had the opportunity to speak to anybody there was was always delightful and and that's what he built and it was a thing it still is a thing of beauty um because of what he established there and and that's what we should all aspire to as leaders is to build something that that continues on even when we're not there and that's what i what i always tell people is that the the most important if or or most enduring measure of a leader is what happens when they're not around and and I think that 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 organization after his departure is testament to that because um, it it didn't change um, because of what he built. 
Yeah, and that kind of that gets into a conversation about culture and how how leadership can shift culture in a more positive direction that's sustainable like that, which you know kind of lends to your whole idea of like autocracy is out, culture is in, you know, get people invested and incentivized to participate and great things can happen. Exactly. It, but it's it's not culture for culture's sake. So back to kind of maybe where we started in all of this, it's not and never should be about, hey, just just be nice to people and and the results follow um, because it never works out that way. It's but it's about making it clear to people what's expected of them and also making it clear to people when they let you down that there's consequences to that. But but the consequences come in such a way as to never take anything away from the dignity of that person. But it's it's about creating a a culture that's that's built around the achievement of something that's important to everyone involved from the stakeholders to the people who work there to the customer. And, and that's why it matters. So it's not a matter of saying, Hey, let's build a culture of a, of a place that's great to work and, and hope the results follow, or let's, let's build a, a culture of a really profitable company and hope that it's a fun place to work. No, it's, it's about building a culture that says, this is going to be a place where people love to come to work where customers love to buy from and where investors love to put their money. And, and when you get it all right, it's a, it's a thing that's fantastic. It's a thing that, that I've uh, achieved in my life and, and a thing that I've seen in other places. And if, if you do it that way, it can be absolutely man scientifical. No, absolutely. There was an article this week that came out of uh, some four people who were working at Blue Origin, Bezos's rocket company, um, that were complaining about a uh, the organization had become terribly toxic and all this type of thing. Um, and obviously, Amazon has had its issues. And in this town, Amazon is known even at the corporate level of being a pretty brutal place to work. Um, and Amazon is one of the world's largest companies. Um, what do you think about all that? Like, do you think, like, do you think it's a, a, do you think it's a company problem or a Jeff Bezos problem? I don't know. I, I would hesitate to say that it's a Jeff Bezos problem. I think that what, what happens in, or the difficulty sometimes is, is the translation from Jeff Bezos across an organization that large because and I think also what happens is that for for every five people that that find it toxic you can find five other people that that say it's fantastic now that that's not to excuse the fact that you can find five people that say it's toxic because I think the the challenge for someone like Jeff is how how do you as an organization gets that big and and achieves that much scope um, replicate over and over and over again what what you've tried to build so let's contrast that again with what tony did at zappos the, he never 
that it never came apart. And, mm -hmm. and so that's what what's incumbent upon us as leaders to ensure is that no matter how big the scope and scale of something gets, that 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 what we're doing culturally never comes apart. Yeah, no, that I I definitely I definitely I definitely see that. I I, I kind of agree with you. I, I I view it as kind of both and um Bezos is known for having a very um a very odd way of leading things. Like he has he kind of has this Amazon is known for its kind of word quirky philosophy, especially at the top. And I think to your point about replication, I think and, you know, and, and he's kind of built this culture of like, you know, small teams and, you know, and it, it you know, it's it's very kind of bifurcated, like, you know, small teams do something, meetings are super short, all this type of thing. And, and I think that that style of culture is not for most people. Like, to your point, like, people need to see the context, how they're contributing. And I think, I think it's a problem of keeping everybody so isolated. Right. And and that that's really my point is that as as things achieve such great scale, the effort has to be made to make sure that that everything stays connected up, because with that kind of scale, it can easily come apart. And 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 for me, um, I'm, I can't um, you know, it's easy for me to sit where I sit and, and say, you know, come on, Jeff, I'm tightening it up. Um, I've never run an organization that large. The largest organization I ever ran had 8,000 people in it. Um, so nowhere near what what he's trying to accomplish. So, um, and, and you're always going to have detractors. And I think, but the, the mindset has always got to be that um, we, we can't as leaders say, that to ourselves we can't say hey there's always going to be detractors what we have to do is strive every day um, to create an environment where there there are are very very few detractors and then where there are detractors that we take steps to to find places for them to be happy because if they can't be happy with us they'll detract from the mission and and so it's incumbent upon us to help them find some place to be happy if it can't be with us. Definitely, definitely. Well, we're 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 nearing we're nearing an hour, which is about what we do with these things. So now's a great time to mention, um, because I butchered it in the introduction. Please tell everyone the title of your book, where they can get it, and where they can find you on social media. Um, the the book is called "The Not So Subtle Art of Caring: Letters on Leadership." Um, it's available for pre-order now on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, and um, and other places where quality books are sold. It'll be released next June um, fully, but again, it's available for pre-order now. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at the Philip Kane um, if you'd like to, um, and and certainly um, would love to hear from folks. Um, about any particular leadership challenges that you have. Um, and um, I write regularly for Inc. And you can follow me at Inc. Magazine as well. Thank you. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, 
Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners, so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast.